Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Crispin Mayfield. Crispin is a licensed counselor. He's also the author of the recent book, Attached to God, A Practical Guide to Deeper Spiritual Experience. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Let Alone. Let Alone is an indie band from Arizona. You can get connected with Crispin and Let Alone and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Crispin Mayfield with us, and Crispin, you are somebody who I have admired for a very long time. I love the work that you do with your podcast. You've actually had me on your podcast at one time. Mm-hmm. I am sort of jealous of people who kind of do more like journalistic type podcasts because it feels like it takes way more work than like the you know thing that I'm doing where I'm just interviewing people and then just putting the interview out there. Like you're actually cutting and slicing and making like kind mm-hmm. of a cohesive narrative out of it. I'm like, my goodness, the work that that takes... I I don't know what it is, but like I just wish I had that kind of like I, I wish I had that sort of work work ethic. But I'm just lazy, <laughs> and I just put the interview out there. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. I mean, by the end, I was like, wow, I am so burnt out. <laughs> There's yeah. a reason that people like this is their full time job to create. Podcasts yes, exactly. Like There's a reason why NPR p- pays people like a w- a living wage to do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, Crispin, you obviously you have a background in ministry, um, and now you're a licensed professional counselor, and you recently wrote a book called Attached to God, A Practical Guide to Deeper Spiritual Experience. I love this book. I think this is going to be like a contender for my book of the year. And so I'm really excited about this conversation. But with that said, who is Crispin Mayfield to Crispin Mayfield? <laughs> I people always ask that and then i just have like an existential crisis good that's what that's what's supposed to be happening right now have your existential crisis and we'll record it and let millions of people listen to it not exactly we'll let yeah no but um i'm a therapist and that's how i got acquainted with attachment science which is what my book is about but for me really it was um really helpful for me making sense of my upbringing in the evangelical church and then, uh, yeah, to make sense of uh, and, and to find a lot of healing. But, you know, so there's that. I'm therapist. Um, my wife and I live in a neighborhood that is kind of on the outskirts of Portland. Um, and we do our darndest to be invested in our local community. That's been different during uh, the pandemic. But mm-hmm. we definitely, it, you know, I I think one of the things with this book is like therapists that write sometimes get really focused on the psychological. And I've been interested in like, so what does this mean politically? Mm. That's not Mm -hmm. what a lot of my book is about, but I at least mention like, yeah, this is like the way that this plays out in our politics and the ways that these attachment styles can even like get in the way of joining God in the work for justice. So I'm glad you actually bring that up. uh, And this is sort of a side conversation to the book, but even outside of the book, one of the things that I absolutely admire both with you and your partner is not only how invested you are in your local community, but also the way that you navigate based on like the professional work that you do as like a therapist and and everything, the way you navigate conversations around justice of like having like firm convictions about things, Mm. but knowing Mm -hmm. how to because you came out of that evangelical world, you have a lot of friends and family from that world. And like knowing how to navigate those kind of conversations with people you disagree, but also still like remaining convicted about the things that you do now. It's just, those are the kinds of people I find really admiring when it comes to my ethics and political constructions. And so uh, I just want to like kind of throw that out there as a thank you and and gratitude for the work that you and your partner have done. It's just really incredible. 
Thanks. I really appreciate that. I think, I mean, a lot of that is just coming out of like the relationships that people have invested in us and, you know, feeling like we've been transformed by those really important relationships. And so that's kind of where we're coming from. So absolutely. Well, so let's talk about the book. Is this your first book, by the way? Yes, it is. Uh Uh-huh. Wonderful. So with this being your first book, what did you learn about attachment theory or psychology while you were writing Attached to God that maybe you didn't know before? Yeah, I think um, really like it kind of went the other way in the sense of like I was learning these things about attachment and then I was like, oh, my gosh, this helps me make sense of my faith. And and then I wanted to write a book about it and the people around me wanted me to write a book about it so that I would stop talking to them about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, but I think one of the things that, I mean, there's so many different um, pieces of this and, you know, people usually like to start with the attachment styles um, because that's pretty well known in, in kind of popular culture. But for me, what was most compelling was that what what they found with kids that have experienced trauma is there's this feeling that there's something at your core that is disgusting and broken and drives other people away. And that is the result of trauma. That is like someone who's experienced abuse will feel that way. And so that is like in in and of itself, like the outcome of abusive experience. And that's an abusive message. And then I was like, but wait a minute, that is literally what I was told in Sunday school Mm. is like the core of who you are is rotten and disgusting to God and God does not want to be close to you. And so it really started to make sense to me why the, the quote unquote gospel I was brought up with like was not cutting it in terms of being something that was actually healing or healthy or liberating. And so then I was like, did did anyone else know about this? Did anyone else (laughs) know that like these metaphors that we use in the church to describe sinfulness, like almost directly parallel, like kids that have experienced severe abuse or trauma, how they feel like, and no one else had. So I was like, all right, well, I got to write a book about it. That's amazing. So kind of along those lines, obviously, it seems like there was a learning about yourself in that moment where Mm -hmm. you're like, wait, there's a study about like how like like what's the kind of at core at the core of how kids who have experienced trauma like think about themselves. And you're like, wait, that's exactly what I grew up with in the church. So that's something you sort of clearly had a realization for yourself while you're writing Mm-hmm. in like kind of like processing through that while you're writing the book, what did you learn about yourself in that moment where it was like, okay, now I know this, mm-hmm. but like, what, what do you, what did you learn about yourself post that then? Yeah. So I think that was really helpful to recognize that the shame that I felt was because of, I I'm, I'm a survivor of abuse and trauma and so for me, it was like, oh, this feeling is not because I'm sinful. And the strategy I've been using, and this is like at 30 years old, the strategy I've been using is like, if I can just be good enough, then I'll feel good. If I can stop sinning, or if mm-hmm. I can really believe that my sins are washed away or whatever it is, then this feeling that I'm like rotten at my core will go away. Because that was sort of what I was told was like, your sinfulness uh, makes you feel, you know, makes you rotten, makes you feel rotten. Um, and so you need to be cleansed in order to feel better. And what it made me realize is like, oh, actually, like this feeling is not because of my sin. It's because I have been given messages that I am mm. not loved. And um, Dr. Susan Eastman is a theologian. Um, at Duke Divinity, she does a lot of, she wrote a book called Paul and the Person. She okay. does a lot of work on Paul. And she talks about, you know, Paul talking about this idea of being a new person. And in what she pointed out is like, what attachment shows us is that our sense of self is based on the people in our lives. So if you're given a message early on in life that you are unlovable, not worthy of love, then that is something that's going to stick with you. And so then we come into relationship with God 
and God says, you are worthy of love. And that actually changes the perception of who you are. And, um, and in that way, like you become a new person. And, um, and she sort of like, I mean, you can kind of uh, generalize that, not just to parent child relationships, right, but like, the systems in our world, right? Systems generally have, especially for marginalized people, give those messages of like, there's something mm-hmm. broken about you. There's something wrong with you. So then coming into a relationship with God and theoretically <laughs> into the people of God, then there's a new experience of yourself. And so for me, that was really liberating to be like, oh, so this feeling of being rotten is not because I am rotten, but it's because this is what humans do when their needs for connection aren't met. Right. So you're saying that Paul is a good example of how we ought to relate to God and having a good attachment style to God. Is that what you're uh, saying? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> Go read Paul and the person. <laughs> I can just imagine like how many people who using some of Paul's words have or mm-hmm. people weaponizing some of Paul's words to make followers or people of the mm-hmm. church to think that they are like rotten to the core and then therefore developing really not, not the best attachment styles to God. Right. Yeah. No, totally. And yeah, Paul's words have been used uh, in all these different ways. And, you know, I think he wrote in a certain culture and was writing to specific issues that then you know have been used to uphold uh lots of lots of terrible things but yeah actually paul paul at least according to dr eastman paul was sort of a humanist in this sense he's like yeah people want to do good and they are ruled by sin and like this this embodiment of sin rules our world and even in like Romans, she talks about how by chapter five, like sin is never referred to after like chapter five is like a decision or like a choice someone makes or a behavior. Mm -hmm. It's like this embodied force in the world. And Paul is saying humans want to do good. They want to love, you know, they want to be loving. And yet sin keeps us from doing what we want to do, which is where like, even when we, you know, that, that, uh, is it? Romans 7, right? I do what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm, Basically mm-hmm. what Paul, at least according to Eastman, is saying there's like, Paul's sort of saying, I'm a good person, but it's sin in me that's doing the bad things. Like I can mm. imagine him showing up at an AA meeting and be like, I didn't relapse this week. I promise. It was sin within me. Like I'm off the <laughs> hook. <laughs> like I wanted to stay sober. It's sin that is that, that's right. like in control here. And there, like that whole like reading is more complex. I think Paul is, Doctor Eastman. I think would say like that also is he's not referring to himself currently, but as like prior to being liberated by Jesus, which mm. then opens up a whole other thing totally. of like. But I think that's it. Is like God came to liberate us from sin, which means that like we do have these, we do have a desire to do good and to love our neighbors and sin gets in the way. Yeah. That's the the interesting thing about Paul is that in a very generous reading of him, you have somebody who <laughs> was a genocidal leader and murderous dictator basically. And uh-huh. then all of a sudden he becomes somebody who is having to escape jails. Like he's always on the edge of being killed by the empire. Like mm-hmm. his life totally actually it's funny. One of my first classes in at my Bible college, which was like the, the religion department was like pretty moderate, if you will. <laughs> our, our Bible professor had he basically was like, if you want to look at Paul from like a secular history, you want to look at Paul from like a very non-Christian lens. You're just looking at his biography. You have somebody who whose life was great. And then like uh-huh. then his life sucked. And that's what you have. <laughs> And yet, like Paul, his whole life, even though like materially it sucked, mm-hmm. his life changed in the fact that like it seems, again, if you have a really generous reading of him, you have somebody mm-hmm. who was loving and caring and doing whatever he could for for people who were oppressed and, and whatnot. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Big side tangent there. <laughs> so we've been talking about attachment systems, attachment theory, attachment science. What exactly is all of this? Like for the person who has never heard this at all, like what would your yeah. like kind of elevator speech be for them? Yeah. So basically we have this core drive to connect and uh, with with others in our life and with God. And we will use whatever means necessary to get and keep that connection. And what we found uh, in the research is that uh, basically we can look at, like, there are three different categories that, that these behaviors fall into. And this started with infants. So you had some infants that would cling to their parents as a way of keeping connection, right? Don't leave, which most toddlers do that. I just want to give a big caveat here of like, this was a specific experiment that they were running. Mm -hmm. Don't think about the last time you dropped your kids off at daycare and what that means. But they (laughs) found that some kids were like, yeah, I need to cling to my parent because if I don't, if I let go they're they're going to leave and never come back. You had Mm -hmm. some kids that were like, if I get clingy or if I show my emotions to my parents, then they're going to push me away because they think I'm too emotional. And so my way of keeping connection is actually to keep a little bit of distance. And there's actually like this little radius that they would track where these kids would like get not too far and not too close. And then you also have kids that, I mean, really sadly in, in abusive situations um, or neglect situations where the kid is kind of caught between like, I want to get close to my parent, but I'm also afraid of them um, because they might hurt me. And so then like you have these two conflicting drives going on, which, uh, you know, then you, you look through these things through the lens of faith, right? Some of us are like, all right, I got to like cling on to God. Like it's up to me to Mm -hmm. keep this connection. You know, like if I, if I slip, then I'm going to fall and I'm going to fall away from faith. Right. And there can be all this anxiety, which means you never get to rest. Um, There's some of us that are like, yeah, if I uh, am sad or depressed or whatever, like negative emotions, that means that there's something wrong with my faith. And so I need to stuff those down and pretend like I'm okay to be a good Christian. And that's how I keep my closeness to God. And then some of us are like, like I referred to earlier, where it's like, I want to be close to God, but also I'm afraid that God is wrathful and just going to be so disgusted mm-hmm. with me. And so then I'm stuck in this place. And you can have like all three of these, <laughs> you can use all three of these strategies, mm-hmm. um, but usually you lean uh, on one of them. And it was just really helpful to be like, okay, so this research about infants actually like can correlate with the way that we approach God. So that was really what struck me. So there's names for each one of these attachments, mm-hmm. right? So can you talk about what each one of those, or the names of each one, yes, and then yes. just like a brief description? Obviously, you talked a little bit about each three right. or all three, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about yeah. like what what like anxious is and, and all mm-hmm. that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so yeah, thinking about, um, so first is anxious attachment and that's that, you know, clinging part and, uh, that's what it looks like in an infant, but this can show up in romantic relationships as well, where it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to text you 10 times and wonder why you haven't texted me back. Mm-hmm. Or it might be like, I am like, for me, like there was, I've been married for, uh, 14 years now. And uh, prior to my wife and I doing some therapy that was based on attachment, I realized like, oh, yeah, I get up and like make coffee for my wife every morning so that she won't leave me. Right. Which is Mm. like for her, she's like, that's not like it better be a damn good cup of coffee. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And so, you know, we we get into these kind of codependent positions where it's like, I'm really worried about this relationship and I can't really focus on much else. And. And then, you know, that can play out in, in faith. And we've probably all known or experienced that of like, I'm, I'm trying so hard to keep my connection with God that I can't focus much on, on much else. Right. So mm-hmm. for me, it was like, 
being in a teenager and trying to stay up all night praying, right? Which doesn't actually set you up very well for like emotional balance or learning in school, but it was like, I need to like have this connection with God. Mm -hmm. And um, again, it means that you can't rest and which is, you know, one of the promises that we're given. So, so that's anxious. Uh Uh-huh. Next one. Shut down. Yep. Shut down is this one where it's like, really like being too clingy or or really like expressing your needs or emotions meant that you were going to get rejection from your parent and so the safest way to keep connection is to just be okay on your own right Mm -hmm. I can at least be in the same room as my parent they're not going to send me to my room for crying you know as long as I can like keep it together and so and these are kids that they still experience the same amount of stress that we've done not we, but they've done studies and seen like heart rate is up, like stress hormones are all there, but the kid looks okay from the outside. And these are people that grow up to be adults that are like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine. And they're like really disconnected from their emotions. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what they're feeling. And they're just generally pretty, pretty happy to just fill their time with stuff, but they, you know, tinkering in the garage, but they have a hard time connecting with other people emotionally or mm-hmm. partners might say like, it feels like you're not letting me in. And they're like, I right. don't know what you mean. I don't have any emotions. I'm fine. So this is like the kind of person that like, if they got in an argument with their partner or with a friend, they just kind of shut down and they're just like mm-hmm. going to avoid right, yeah. all the feelings and all of the mm-hmm. the disagreement altogether. Yes, exactly. Definitely. And it's really good to remember that there's a really good reason for that. Because if you grew up in a family where it's like, yeah, if I actually shared my emotions, that just makes things worse, right? Then why Mm -hmm. would I want to do that? And our attachment systems are so automatic that then we get into a new situation with like maybe a partner that's like, I actually want to know what you're feeling. But it, during those times of stress, the attachment system takes over. The other thing right. that happens is like that can get perpetuated because this is someone that's not very practiced in their emotions. And so they're like, I don't know. I kind of feel bad. And then they sometimes will get messages from their partner like, well, what do you mean bad? Like, tell me more. And they're like, I don't know how to explain more. Like, this is so new to me. Right. <laughs> to to try to explore my feelings and so then it gets reinforced like you are bad at talking about emotions it doesn't go well when you try to share and it just gets perpetuated that's the sort of shut down or avoidant attachment mm-hmm. style what's right. the next mm-hmm. one and then the third one is shame filled and that's you know in some ways feels similar to the second one because there's this part of like wanting distance but there's also a deep part of you that really wants connection and you're really aware of that. So it's like that person where it's like, yeah, I want, I want to be close to other people, but I'm afraid that if I'm vulnerable with them, they're going to see me for who I really am and they're going to turn around and run away. Mm-hmm. And this again shows up with, with our faith because it's like, I want to be close to God And yet I've been given all these messages that God is just going to be disappointed in me or disgusted with me. I think about, uh, you know, sort of that sloppy example of salvation where people say, you know, when God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus, Mm. which is this way of saying like, yeah, if God actually saw you, God would be so angry or upset or disgusted. And so you have to keep a Jesus mask on. And that perpetuates that shame. It says like, you know, it, it's it's that piece of like, yeah, if, if God really knew me, if God could see beyond the Jesus mask, God would really not like me. So the shame style is just basically every Tim Keller tweet. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if you want to get really specific about it, uh, Piper like lays it out like he says things like it's not an over uh, overestimate or like uh an exaggeration to say that god hated john piper he talks about himself in third person for some reason or him being like yeah like when we i mean so this is something that actually i've thought a a lot about with the shame filled style is the way that sanctification gets brought into this where it's like 
God saved you so that you could become perfect so that God could would want to be around you. And Piper mm. has said things like when it comes to a personal relationship, God finds us utterly, you know, disgusting. But here's the good news. God is changing you into like a perfect person that God wants to be around. And for that person with a lot of shame, with a lot of trauma, it feels like, yeah, there's no actual love here for me. Like I have to jump through these hoops to actually get acceptance. And I'm getting, God is giving me a chance to jump through these hoops, but Mm -hmm. I still have to jump through them. Um, And then on a, on a, larger community level right this upholds white supremacy this upholds Mm. this because it it upholds um thinking about like people that are experiencing addiction where it's like yeah like the the good people that god can stand are in the church because those are the good people that have undergone sanctification and that person on the street like god's gonna give them a chance or like you know whoever like if you look at the center of whiteness and um, and other privileges, right, is like those are the good people, and everyone's invited in. But you know, it's not going to be until you really get yourself together mm. that God likes you. And getting yourself together is in white evangelicalism is just normed around whiteness. So, right. this episode of a People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So based on kind of what you're saying then, it seems like evangelicalism predominantly tries to create a shame-filled attachment style between evangelicals and God. Uh, you, you know, you yeah. grew up out of, you came out of evangelicalism. I came out of evangelicalism. I would guess mm-hmm. most of my listeners are people who are former evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if, based on what you're talking about, that that is predominantly, not to say evangelicalism doesn't try to create other attachment styles with mm-hmm. between evangelicals and God, but it seems like the shame-filled one is the predominant one. Yes, I th- yes, and what I see, especially in reform circles, is that you have a lot of leaders that have a shutdown attachment style to God, where it's like, I don't have to emotionally engage. I just, if I can know the right information, if I can get the right information, then I can, you know, kind of like hold all the theology. And then when suffering comes up, I have the answer for it. Um, And I don't have to sit with those uncomfortable questions about like, why is there suffering in the world or a million other things, right? Like, why are some people in and some people out? Like, that's a really good question. Like, why does God want to save some people um, and have some people burn eternally? And if you have the shutdown attachment style, you're like, well, that's just the way it is. Like, that's just like, we can read the Bible and God's ways are are bigger than our ways. And there's this spiritual bypass. So I see that a lot. But then what I see is through that way of engaging in theology in this very like kind of removed way, they don't have a problem speaking about like how wretched you are. Mm. And it's like, well, that's just the thing, right? Um, and And this is coming from personal experience, like where right. I went to a church for a while where like, Every week before communion, one of the pastors got up and reminded us how wretched we are and how unlovable we are. 
but what I see is then people that are struggling with like anxiety or depression or trauma or feeling really bad about themselves, they're hearing that from that leader and they're not hearing it in this like abstract theological way right. there. It's just reinforcing that shame that they're already feeling. Mm. So I don't know. That's kind of the intersection I see between those. I think the anxiety piece uh, is also like plays into in evangelicalism in terms of like, you have to behave a certain way. You know, it's like, it's not about your works. It's about a relationship with God. And then there's like a little asterisk and it's like, your relationship depends on you doing these things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out it actually is about religion. Right. And then there's, you know, uh, you think about like charismatic spaces. That's where you can see some of that more uh, anxious um, pieces show up. I would say yeah, like the amount of people I know that experience anxiety with their relationship with God because they didn't know if they could speak in tongues or something in, mm-hmm. in those more Pentecostal charismatic charismatic spaces. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, there was a lot of people in that world that really developed that kind of anxious style mm-hmm. because of that. Right. Yeah. And the the research, I just want to be true to the research. The research says that that there are people in all of these communities that have a secure attachment with God and they can on some level thrive in those communities. Mm. And I've wrestled with like what to make of that. But what I understand that to mean is that if you have a secure relationship with God, where it feels like God likes you and delights in you and you have a good enough relationship, you can go in to a church and hear about like, hellfire and be like well yeah that maybe that exists but like i know god and i are okay the problem is for those of us like myself where it's like i don't feel that secure like i Mm. because of whatever reason like whether it's other life experiences if it's the the church that i was brought up in if you're talking about hell i'm like okay well how do i make sure to not go there and what do I need to do? <laughs> right. And then they're like, oh, yeah, it's easy. You just make sure to like walk with God and don't sin and uh, make sure that you really believe. You know, you can't just say a prayer. It needs to be something you really feel in your heart. Right. right. And then those of us that are anxious are like, okay, well, all right, I'm going to try to do this. And it creates, I would say, it really doesn't create a healing or safe place for those that are that are already struggling for those that are okay like they can survive there but for those of us that are already feeling bad about ourselves it it doesn't help so it seems as if the people who do have a secure attachment with god in those spaces are have that attachment in spite of what they're constantly probably being told by those churches exactly right Mm -hmm. that makes sense Yeah, right. It's like, I mean, people will say things like, oh, like, is it abusive if your parent says like, I, I, I love you, but I don't have to like you. And you're like, yeah, that's not a great thing to say to a kid. But if you say that to a kid, if you're a kid and you know that your parent really likes you and loves you and you're okay, like, then your parent can say something sassy like that. And it's not going to like hit in the same way. Mm. Whereas like, if I feel like I'm always a burden on my parents or they're always annoyed with me or they really don't like me, then your parent says that and it really hurts. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a similar thing. That makes sense. So you have touched on this a little bit then about the secure attachment. So we mentioned the other three and then there's this secure attachment. So can you talk Uh a little bit about what the secure attachment is and what that would look like in different kinds of relationships, not only with parents, but with friends and maybe even like other partners? So, um, I mean, for one thing, when I wrote the book, I talked about the insecure styles because we all go there sometimes. We all are on that spectrum somewhere. And so um, in the research, they basically ask like, are you secure or are you anxious or are you shut down? And what I'm saying is like, we don't really fit into those clear boxes as people. There are going to be times where we reach for those insecure things. So the idea is like, when you're feeling insecure, you know, do you tend more anxious? Do you tend more shame filled? Do you tend more shut down? And then how do you get to that security? And that security is around like, are you there for me? Are you responsive? Do you delight in me? And that really is like the the research shows 
that that is sort of the core of it. It's not about like, do we fight or even discipline methods or Mm. the words we say? It's more about like, do I have a sense in my body that you delight in me? And for folks that are listening, you can think about who are the people in my life that are like, I, I know that they like me. And even if we have rough times, like they are glad to see me when I see them. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, for some people, it's like, I don't have relationships like that in my life. Some people, it's a dog, which is mm. not a bad place to start to be like, okay, like, what if God felt about you the way that your dog felt about you? Right. Like, Which all um, dogs probably have like an anxious attachment style. Like, yeah, right. They're yeah. so clingy. But sometimes. They, yeah. Right. But like loyal and they don't really care, you know, right. they don't punish you. They're just like there in the moment with you. And so, yeah. So, you know, I think that that is a good thing, like a good framework for secure attachment is like that person in my life. That's sort of an anchor for me. And that's what we want to be moving to with God. And unfortunately in the church, so often it's been just the opposite. It's been like, I have to keep God happy. I have to like, it's all up to me. This is an extra <laughs> on top of work or school and all my other relationships. Now I also like have this other task of like trying to keep God happy through quiet time mm. or evangelizing or whatever it is. And it's funny because the research, a lot of the research out there around attachment and faith is like the attachment researchers and psychologists are like, when it comes to attachment, like faith is amazing because God is always there for you and God can be the secure attachment figure when no one else is. And God will just respond to your emotions. And like, if God is just a resource for people. And if you grew up, like I did, you're like, uh, I don't think you understand this. Like that's (laughs) not, that is not my experience. Those things, like those messages are there. And alongside them are like, and also it's your job to keep God happy and to right, right. make sure that you don't lose your faith and make sure that you do the right thing. And um, are you praying enough? And it really is another burden and stressor. It's not a resource. I'm glad you bring that up because that was going to be my next question. Has there been any research around the type of attachment style somebody is brought up in their faith? with God, uh, like whatever style that is, maybe they grew up with having a, or being told that they need to have some sort of, or developing a sort of attachment style, like the anxious attachment style with God. Mm -hmm. And that being the attachment style that they predominantly have in all of their other relationships. Is there any research around that, that like the sort of attachment style that they have with God is the way that they also operate with their attachment styles in the rest of their lives with other people? Yes. Uh, that being said, it's so it's uh, it's complex. Um, <laughs> and generally, the research is it has been about how does your parental relationship impact how you relate to God? And that's generally how it's understood mm. is like going that direction, not the other way around. That being said, culturally, the way that our like our our community views God tends to really impact the way that we parent. And so Mm. your parents theology will impact the way that they parent, which then impacts your attachment style, which then impacts how you relate to God. Mm. And then you start it all over again. right? Right. So that impacts your theology. And, but there's actually a lot of research out there around, um, Kids that have a good relationship with their parent are more likely to continue in their parents' faith tradition. And which is interesting too, because, you know, there there's, I'm thinking about myself and my wife where it's like, yeah, we're continuing on our faith tradition, but it looks really different than your right, 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 tradition, right. right? Like we're like taking the things that you told us seriously. And so we don't understand why you're supporting Trump. Right. Um, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of research around that stuff. What I think is, so this is just my kind of theory as I've done some reading during those early years, our brain is working on a very nonverbal symbolic level 
and our attachment system is forming. And so we are putting things together. We're not reading textbooks as young kids. Right. We are we are taking in lots of images, um, lots of feelings, lots of sensory information. If we go to a church where we are giving these powerful metaphors, and I don't mean powerful in a good way, powerful metaphors of like, here's this rag that's white, and then you sin, and we're going to pour dirt on it, and this is what you look like inside without Jesus. Like, my theory is that those metaphors really create a lot of a lot of like concept of self um, because we just know that in general in psychology that images and metaphors are more powerful than something like a statement like god loves you right and even the images that we've been given for god's love like we have these really powerful images of like god being disgusted with us uh whether it's like a black heart or you know a black page which also upholds white supremacy right yeah but, you know, then you're like, but here's an image of, of God loves you, the cross, which is like, for one, a more complex metaphor. It's not very straightforward like the other ones are. Mm-hmm. And also like the message there is like a mixed message of like, God is so disgusted with you. God needed you to die, but Jesus took your place. And so just thinking about like these early messages that we got, and this is like, has been my anecdotally, my experience where people that come to the church later in in life don't seem to have that same sort of baggage. They're able Mm. to kind of like make sense of God's love in a different way has been my experience. That's interesting. So that does kind of lead me to my next question. And this is where I really am interested. So there's all these different metaphors that you know, if you grew up in evangelicalism, you were you were taught about God that kind of shaped the way you thought about God and then therefore your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And if we want to have a secure relationship, a secure attachment with God, then there are different ways that we need to think about God and our relationship with God. And so mm-hmm. what I'm curious is the sort of like constructive proposal that you make in the book about how we should think about God and how God relates to us. So what is the constructive com- sort of proposal that you make of like, this is how we should think about God and how God relates to us so that we have a secure attachment with God? Yeah. So I reference the prodigal son story because um, I think that's a really good picture of it where uh, you have a father that is that provides this secure relationship because the son goes away, but he knows like I can come back whenever I need. Actually, let me tell you this: this is a bit of a spoiler from the book, but Billy Graham told this story, <laughs> and er- early on, uh, he told this sermon where he was like, "The gospel is like this: there's a, a father and a son in a cabin." And the son is enveloped in reading a novel and the dad says, go get me wood for the fire. And the son uh, is distracted and doesn't respond. And so then the dad raises his voice and says like, go get me the wood for the fire. And the son gets mad and le- you know, says no, slams the door and leaves. We're already seeing some differences with the prodigal son story right where this is like a cranky got father mm-hmm. who uh you know demands obedience son leaves comes back two weeks later is like i'm sorry the dad's face softens for a moment and then he says all right you can come in as soon as you go get that wood from the fire that i told you to mm-hmm. and that was like that's billy graham like who we assume to be like just generic, like this guy like understands the gospel. And so it's really striking. But like, how think could you about... mess up the prodigal son story? <laughs> exactly. Billy right. Graham. <laughs> so you think about that compared to the prodigal son, where it's like the son comes back and the son, even like what I love about the story is he doesn't feel sorry. He's like, I am out of money and I need to scheme a way to like take care of myself. And he's like, at least with my dad, like I could make some money and be able to like have a better way of life. And so he goes to his dad, but before he even gets a chance to apologize, dad just runs out and right. greets him, right? Picks him up. Like I think about- And then throws a party. About, right, exactly. And when we think about like 
Piper saying things like God finds us utterly disgusting, you know, for a relationship. I'm like, but like the father doesn't say like, all right, change your shirt. Like you've been sleeping with the pigs. He's just like, let me give you a huge hug. I don't care. Like, I'm just so glad you're here. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of secure attachment. And we really need to start there. Like God is glad to be with us and God loves us, delights in us. And then everything else comes from that. And some of that has been like going back and understanding, like reading some scholars and understanding even like how, uh, I think historically, but also currently, like how does the Jewish community understand the law? It is a Mm -hmm. gift. It is not, you need to follow this law to keep God happy. That's what Luther thought. But that community understood it as like, yeah, this is like God wants our best. And and I think that's really clear when Jesus says, uh, you know, Sabbath isn't for people or people aren't for Sabbath. For Sabbath. Yeah. Sabbath is for, you know, is for man is the, you know, the translation most of us are familiar with, which is this way of saying so clearly to me, like, this isn't about you being obedient to me. Like, this isn't about like, I really need you to like fall in line and follow my rules this is because I care about you. And like within that, like what Jesus is saying is at least what I take from this is like the moment that those rules are not working for your good, like let's change them. Let's throw them out Mm. because I care more about you than I care about the rules. And so that's basically my, I guess my premise is like God loves us and wants our good. And not just like, this isn't just like, you're good like you know your like personal faith or whatever this is like god loves everyone unconditionally which is why god has a preferential treatment for the poor because they are the people that get mistreated and so we see this god just being like i just want you to flourish because i love you so much and here are the things that i think will help with that but that does not mean that if you don't follow the rules that we're done. Like that's not the way this works. If you're a listener and if there's anything that you come away from this conversation, it's that Jesus actually tells better parables than Billy Graham. Who would have thought? <laughs> right. Imagine that. Imagine that. What a thought. Crispin, how do you hope Attached to God inspires and liberates its readers? I am really hoping that people will be able to put their feelings into words um, and say like, Oh, I've been feeling this way for a while. And I just want to say, yeah, it makes sense. If you feel resentful of God because feels like God is always like making you do all this stuff to keep connection. Like, of course you're going to feel resentful. The one-year-olds in the study felt resentful. (laughs) So like, it's just, you know, it just makes sense. Like that's a way of saying like, that's what our nervous system does when it feels like it's up to me to keep your love and connection. Like our, our, on some level, our nervous system has this resentment. Like these babies would like hug their moms and also like push away at the same time. (laughs) And so if you feel Mm -hmm. that towards God, Just know that like, yeah, that is what humans do. That is what our nervous systems do. And that tells you that there's something wrong here and you're not the problem, Uh, which is Mm. that's I guess that's the biggest thing I want people to walk away with is, you know, especially in an individualistic faith tradition of like, well, it's just you and God. Well, God can't be the problem. So if there's a problem here, you're the problem. And I want people to know you're not the problem. There's just there's more Mm. to be explored here. What I love about the book is that it gives somebody permission to reimagine their relationship with God and even reimagine God in God's Mm -hmm. self. Like that Mm -hmm. you don't have to think about God in the same way that you used to. And you have Mm -hmm. permission then to reimagine who you believe God to be. And Mm -hmm. that reimagination of God can be a God that will allow you to have a more secure relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love the most about this book. Mm. Good. I'm so glad that that came through because that's, that's definitely my goal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Last question, Crispin, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Uh, So I'm on Twitter and Instagram and 
my you can find a bunch of places to buy my book at attached to god.com so you have some options there but yeah i'm gonna be you know continuing to talk about this on on the socials oh yeah and i've uh recently broken into tiktok and i've been making some (laughs) just dances i hope it's just dances it's it's uh attachment styles according to pop songs so uh like what are (laughs) like the first one i did was like three kesha songs and um and like what the attachment style for each song was which was fun i can't imagine that there's too many secure attachment ones no no there's 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 not so (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Mason. Um, I really appreciate the work you do here and on your other podcast and uh, and on the internet and just all the things you're doing. So, Well, thank you so much, Crispin. And thank you again for writing Attached to God. Again, I think it's going to be a contender for my book of the year. It's so great. And it's definitely a book that I will be sharing and, and wanting other people to read. And that's part of the reason why I wanted you to t- chat about it on the podcast. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much. If you would like to connect with Crispin and Let Alone and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.